Hello, and welcome. My name is Andrew Gilbert, and I live and work in Toronto and in Mississauga, both of which lie on the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. So when you come into anthropology, uh, I think that there's a kind of naive humanism uh, that we get in the field that is very skeptical of technology. This argument that algorithms are coming to destroy human nature, they're going to you know, mess up all of the things that are great about humans. And I think a lot of those arguments are premised on an unsupportable vision of what an algorithm is. I think that they don't recognize uh, that what we're dealing with here are social structures and social dynamics. And once you do that, once you start to say, hey, it matters that there are people in these systems, then you start to see uh, critiques like, oh, maybe it matters then that those people are extremely homogeneous, that they share a set of ideas about the way the world works, and that diversifying those groups or intervening on how those human elements are sort of brought into the system, and that might be a way to fix, actually, some of these problems or to address some of these harms. That's Nick Siever assistant professor of anthropology at Tufts University, and author of the article, What Should an Anthropology of Algorithms Do? My name is Andrew Gilbert, and this is the podcast series where I put that turn of phrase, an anthropology of, under scrutiny, and ask various authors who have used that phrase, what does it mean to propose an anthropology of something, and why and how would you do it in the first place? If you are listening to this, then it probably means you already listened to the debut episode, which explains the origins of my interest in these questions. If not, I recommend listening to it first, or at least the opening few minutes. In this episode, Nick recounts his efforts to make algorithms things that can be studied anthropologically. He also describes what it is like to have to push against some pretty common critiques of algorithms, as well as some long-standing hostility to the algorithmic within the discipline. More than any of my other conversations, this one engages directly with public discussions going on right now about how we should navigate the promises and pitfalls of artificial intelligence and technology. So stay with me as we take a deep dive into an anthropology of algorithms. Now, origin stories were among the first things I asked my fellow anthropologists about. Where did the idea to propose an anthropology of something come from? For some... Field research was the answer. For others, like Nick, the inspiration came from elsewhere. So as an anthropologist interested in algorithmic stuff, I spent a lot of my time talking to non-anthropologists because this was a topic that anthropologists didn't tend to talk about. So I kind of sharpened my teeth on this topic by trying to convince people in other disciplines that anthropology had something to offer them. Uh, so I would talk to folks in media studies, communication, STS, and so on, and try to say, here, there are anthropological resources that we can use uh, that are useful to making sense of these increasingly uh, 
apparent technical objects in the world, algorithms. So that's been my shtick, I would say, for a long time, uh, is trying to sort of sell anthropology to non-anthropologists. And what was interesting about this article uh, was that I had to do something different. I had to talk to anthropologists uh, who, to be fair, anthropologists love having anthropology sold back to them. But it gave me a chance to think a little bit more broadly about, okay, well, what do anthropologists do here? And I think whenever anyone uses this kind of claim, you know, we should do an anthropology of X, they're, of course, making a normative statement about what anthropology should be. Uh, and I'm certainly guilty of that. And I think the main goal that's in the title, right, what should an anthropology of algorithms do? Uh, my main goal is to say, well, I think we should do this and not that. You might think that we should do that, but I think we should do this. Now, Nick's article was distinct among those that I read or interviewed about, in that most of those proposing an anthropology of something were usually making an argument about the newness of what they were studying. Either that few anthropologists had examined their object, or few had examined it in the way the authors were proposing. By contrast, Nick's article seemed to be pushing back against such an emphasis, acknowledging that what he was arguing for regarding algorithms might mean, quote, giving up the excitement of new objects that might demand new methods, and new journals, conferences, and other trappings of academic novelty in favor of identifying continuities with older concerns. End quote. I asked him whether he saw it the way that I did. Yeah, that I think that rings true to me. And in part, what I might be demonstrating in this article is a bit of my trajectory that brought me to anthropology as a field. Uh, I never took an anthropology class before I started a PhD in anthropology. Uh, I was a literature major as an undergraduate. I did uh, a master's degree in media studies. Uh, and in media studies, uh, there's a big uh, concern around the newness of new media, right? An issue of finding these new objects. Oh, everyone's talking about algorithms. Uh, now, coming to the present, we could say everyone's talking about AI or something like that. Um, and we need to prove that this is new because for it, to be relevant, for it to be fundable, for it to be important, it has to be uh, novel, it has to be brand new. And I tend to bristle at that um, because it usually is overstated. It usually comes from people who have a vested interest in establishing centers, in saying, you know, oh, I have to get money uh, to do this thing. And of course, we do need to get money. And I think there's a political economy of, ac of academia question here, too. Um, but I find it much more useful to say, look, if we can bring something that feels as new as algorithms, that feels as high tech and immaterial and hard to grasp as algorithms, if we can bring that into longer trajectories of uh, critical inquiry, regardless of the discipline, uh, that would be useful. That would be more useful to us than endorsing the idea that these things are brand new, that they came out of nowhere and we need a you know, a whole new set of, of, of equipment to deal with them. It's kind of a conservative position, uh, I've realized as, I, as I'm going about it. Um, but I think it's a reasoned one. It's not, um, it's not saying, oh, we just need to read canonical anthropology for its own sake. Uh, it's saying something different. It's saying, oh, no, we have these sort of tools, these habits of thought that we can bring to new material. Anthropology is a field. We have a history. We have concepts and ways of thinking that are useful. Okay. So it's one thing to say that anthropology has tools for studying algorithms, but that does not tell us much about why and how anthropology might matter in such a study. And so I asked Nick, what are the stakes of the arguments he is making? Okay, so I think there are two answers to this, and one of them is sort of internal to anthropology and one of them is external. Um, this may be a fake distinction, but that's sort of how I'm thinking of it now. Um, 
let's say for the outside of anthropology, I think the stakes of an anthropological approach to algorithms in particular, there's there's a very specific problem uh, that I was writing against uh, in this moment and that I feel like I've been writing against over and over, which is this vision of algorithms as inhuman. You know, it's just math, it's automation, it's a technical system that has no people in it. And that's the problem, right? The problem with these systems is that they are quantitative, rational, technical, they just function as a machine. Um, and I think the problem with that approach, and it's a pro- it's an approach you see not only in anthropology, but in the public sphere and all over the place. I think the problem with that approach is that it doesn't understand this lesson uh, that we know from anthropology of technology and also uh, from STS, uh, which is that most technologies we talk about are best understood as, as socio-technical systems, right? They have people involved in them, um, especially for something like a quote-unquote algorithm, you know, the Netflix recommender, the Facebook newsfeed, whatever. Those are not something as simple as a computer program just doing exactly what it was programmed to do, right? There are human hands in there changing things all the time. Uh, and sort of my work, the book that I'm working on now based on this work, is all about the sort of importance of those people, of these people who work in these systems and make decisions. Uh, so the stakes here uh, are correctly diagnosing the problem. So it's not a problem of algorithms in the sense of algorithms as their own kind of remote, rational entities. Um, but it's a problem of social organization. It's a problem of what kind of entities make effects on other kinds of entities, right? So uh, I quote this line that I really love from uh, an article by Brian Pfaffenberger, um, uh, which is in some ways just like the most classic and at the present moment, like basic argument one could make about tech. But he says, technology is not an independent, non-social variable that has impact on society or culture. Um, and then he says, when we examine the impact of technology on society, we're talking about the impact of one kind of social behavior on another. And what I'm doing there, and this maybe brings us into anthropology as a discipline, is I'm trying to say this object, these objects, algorithms are the kind of thing that anthropologists can and should study, right? There can be an anthropology of algorithms. It's not just math. There doesn't need to only be a computer science uh, of algorithms, let's say. And so making that case means changing what the assumption is about what constitutes an algorithm, uh, right? You have to, I've, one of the main things I've published on about around this topic so far uh, is, is methods, right? It's a question of like, how do you do an ethnography of an algorithm? And you have to really change what you mean um, by algorithm to make it available, to that kind of method. And I think it's worth doing um, because I think it's more adequate to the way to the way things actually work. So when you come into anthropology, uh, I think that there's a kind of naive humanism uh, that we get in the field that is very skeptical of technology, right? This argument that algorithms are coming to destroy human nature. They're going to, you know, mess up all of the things that are great about humans. And I think a lot of those arguments are premised on uh, uh, an unsupportable vision of what an algorithm is. I think that they don't recognize uh, that what we're dealing with here are social structures and social dynamics. I think people are increasingly picking that up. I think if you look at a recent book um, uh, edited by Catherine Bestman and Hugh Gusterson called Life by Algorithms, it's about bureaucratic rationality, largely, right? It's about disempowerment. It's about the real problems that people in institutions face. It's not really about algorithms as a kind of rational other coming in to mess up our human stuff. You can point back to all sorts of moments uh, to say, this is a social organization problem. It's not a problem where math and computers are essentially and intrinsically inhuman. Sorry. 
So, if you've listened to any of the other podcasts in this series, then you know that there are a few threads I've noticed running through many proposals for an anthropology of something. One of them is the freedom to propose an anthropology of something in the first place. As I noted earlier, we are often encouraged to think not only what anthropology can bring to the study of something like algorithms, but also what the study of algorithms might contribute to the field of anthropology. This encourages us to see the discipline as malleable and as something that we might shape in some small way. Another thread that I noticed is an anti-determinism, expressed in a focus on those things that are unexpected or unpredictable, or that exceed the boundaries of the categories, frameworks, or practices with which we and others try to discursively contain the lives of those we study. As you have already heard, Nick's argument about algorithms definitely has an anti-determinism to it, and I asked him about this aspect of the article and whether he saw anti-determinism as something baked into anthropology as a discipline. Yeah, that's an interesting framing. It's not one that I had considered for myself, um, but I do recognize myself in it. I think that um, to a certain extent, I'm interested in pushing back against you know, strongly deterministic accounts of how technology uh, relates to humans, about how technology affects human life. And that's, you know, partaking in a very long tradition of work in the history of technology about technological determinism and so on and so forth. Um, so there is a there there. There's an argument of like, oh, well, we need to account for this weird, reactive, chancy, uh, you know, fleeting human stuff that's in these systems. Um but we do also want to do it, like I was suggesting earlier, in a way that isn't overly essentializing about what the nature of that human stuff is. Um, what I find useful about the idea of doing an anthropology of something is that as anthropologists, we have a kind of freedom. We ourselves have a kind of uh, liberty to move uh, across frames of reference, to draw things together that aren't drawn together by other people. Uh, and that, to my mind, is uh, worth preserving. It's part of the sort of anthropological mission that's uh, super useful. So in another article of mine, uh, I talk about the anthropology of trapping and algorithms together. And I think that ability to take what we find in the world a little bit more literally and a little bit more figuratively than the people involved take it, I think that's actually a useful thing uh, for us to do. And uh, the reason I say that and why that's a little bit abstract is because I'm very concerned with the possibility that doing an anthropology of something means bringing a kind of... Uh, sedimented, old, uh, and not bad because it's old, um, but bad in particular ways, uh, you know, colonialist, racist, sexist, all of these things. But what I find useful from the anthropological tra tradition is this commitment to comparison uh, and this commitment to uh, bringing... Um, to bringing apparently disparate things together. Uh, and in some cases, that's been the sort of nomothetic law-finding side of the field and finding how they're actually secretly the same. Um, and I'm obviously not interested in laws, but I am interested in uh, the productivity of bringing these things together, of using um, one kind of concept or topic as a model uh, for thinking about 
other things. And so that's why in this article, there's a few things I do uh, where I draw out parts of anthropology and say, look, here's a model that we could use. It's not about what I'm talking about, but we can find a shape there. I, I talk about this idea of the analog slot, uh, that there's a sort of structure of anthropological interest uh, that could suggest that we are limited to this specific carve-out. Um, and what we might do instead is interrogate the overall conditions that result in this idea that there's a sort of an analog domain, which we can define as everything that's not in a computer, which is a baffling kind of category. In the same way that, that uh, Michel Rolf trio suggests that we need to look at the sort of overall field of meaning in which the idea of the savage slot exists. And I find that a really productive thing. I don't want to try to displace uh, concerns about colonialism and concerns about race, obviously, with this move, right? Those slots still exist. Um, but I do think that finding similarities across these um, apparently disparate domains is a way to open those questions up. And once you do that, once you start to say, hey, it matters that there are people in these systems, then you start to see uh, critiques like you see uh, now, even more in popular media, like, oh, maybe those people in those systems, maybe it matters then that those people are extremely homogeneous in terms of their background, right? That they share a set of ideas about the way the world works and that diversifying those groups or intervening on how those human those human elements are, are sort of brought into the system, uh, that that might be a spot for, for critical intervention. That might be a way to fix, actually, some of these problems or to address some of these harms. Indeed, Nick provides a great example of these stakes in his article. He notes how, back in 2015, an African-American programmer noticed that Google Photos had automatically tagged him and an African-American friend in a clearly racist way. And while it is certainly necessary to critique and theorize the conditions that produce this initial algorithmic output or effect, Nick argues that if we want to understand this form of racism, then it is equally important to investigate what happened next. That is, to look at how the humans responsible for that Google Photo algorithm reacted to its critique. I think that's right. I just want to weigh in on one reason why that's interesting, right? Because, um, you know, these examples that there are plenty of about algorithms having racist outcomes, uh, and it's an important part of sort of public accountability reporting in the present moment. Um, what's interesting about this particular case is that this was an instance where Google had part of its system was automatically tagging uh, images, and it tagged a pair of black friends as containing gorillas, which is a very classic racist outcome from this particular kind of algorithm in this particular cultural context. Um, and what happened, right, was that it sort of went viral on Twitter. Uh, the people who worked on that team at Google saw that it had gone viral on Twitter. Uh, they tried to address it. They stopped that problem from happening. And so uh, an overly simplistic view might say, okay, well, the algorithm was doing something bad. It was fixed. Uh, and now what are we going to say about the algorithm? Um, but the funny thing is that what it turned out they did uh, was they just stopped that system from labeling non-human primates. Uh, so the way that they solved that problem embodied a, their own worldview, right? It was a quick fix. It's a kind of a kludge fix. Uh, and people realized about a year later, it was like, oh, you can't, it won't identify any gorillas. Like if they're, that's the way that they fixed the problem. Uh, and I think that's important then because it points to the fact that it matters that there are people in here, not just because they mean that a system can be responsive and that it, that's good, um, but that when a system is responsive, it's responsive in 
very particular ways that are formatted by the way those people think. Uh, and this was one example of, of, of the sort of weird way that works. So to study algorithms is to enter into a world of critique. And Nick's proposition for an anthropology of algorithms is concerned with resisting or noting the limits of certain kinds of critique, like the ones he's already discussed. It seemed to me that the origins of some of what he is pushing back against might lie in what Sherry Ortner called the turn to dark anthropology in the 1980s. That is, anthropology that focuses on the harsh dimensions of social life, on relations of power, domination, inequality, and oppression. An approach to algorithms in such terms would be to seek out how they perpetuate forms of control, subjection, hegemony, and so on. But Nick saw deeper roots to the suspicion and distrust that characterizes how some anthropologists and others approach algorithms. I asked him to elaborate. I think that I would draw a slightly different lineage, actually, than that, um, which is that I think that this this thing that I identify in the article as a kind of casual analog humanism, right, this thing that anthropologists tend towards, I think it's it's much older than um, the kind of stuff that, that that I think Ortner is talking about in her piece. But I think that um, one of the things I've been interested in is, you know, over the history of the discipline, uh, and this is something I've, I've written about in other places, um, you see these instances of anthropology and particularly of the sort of ethnographically rich, uh, uh, you know, sort of intimate style of anthropology defining itself against uh, mathematical and technological others, right? So you see it, obviously you see it in Gertz, it's sort of de definitionally there in, in his essay on thick description, uh, which I'll come back to in a second, but you see it earlier in, in Malinowski, right? So Malinowski writes about kinship uh, and talks about what he calls the bastard algebra of, of kinship, right? This idea that kinship is a matter of charts and rules and, and, and formulas. And he talks about, you know, what about the sort of, he doesn't say lived experience, but like, what about that lived experience of, of having kin? Shouldn't we get closer to sort of the blood of, uh, of kinship? And he calls in that essay for a full-blooded description, if I'm remembering right. As I was learning how to become an anthropologist, I've been interested in that dynamic over the history of the, of, of the field. So you see it as far back as Malinowski. Gertz is the sort of canonical one today that I think people would unproblematically cite as like, that's what I'm doing. Uh, that's important to me. Uh, and what people don't usually talk about is how much of that essay Clifford Gertz spends uh, talking about how bad um, ethnoscience is and how bad cognitive anthropology is. So he spends all of this effort saying, well, the thing we're not doing is this and that. Uh, he calls them uh, ethnographic algorithms, actually, at one point. Uh, and so he actually sort of defining anthropology as it was going to become predominantly against uh, something that he's calling algorithmic, right? Against this kind of rote thing. And I find that interesting, not because I like ethnoscience or because I want to defend that particular strain of post-war cognitive anthropology, uh, but because if you look at the sort of lineages of contemporary like machine learning practice, uh, they meet with the lineages of anthropology at the cognitive turn. You see methods that are used in cognitive anthropology in the sort of 60s and 70s around ethnoscience efforts to formally study culture uh, and to sort of mathematize it. You see directly related methods in use today. Uh, in these algorithmic systems. And so what I've tried to do in my own work is to not just recapitulate this classic 
argument that we make, right? We, we all, we know how to play this argument. We know how to be like, well, what I do is the thick humanist side of things. And what you do is the thin formless side of things. But I found it important to say, wait a minute, we're just playing pre-scripted interactional roles here, right? There's two moieties, there's the science people, and there's the humanists. And we're going to interact in this set of scripted ways to keep the whole house of academia together. And I don't think we have to do that. But just because we don't have to do that does not mean giving up a critical orientation to algorithms. Nick was quick to point this out. I am super interested in being critical of these systems, and I am very excited about a lot of work that's coming out now, uh, particularly around, to use another sort of Ortner-related term, refusal, um, around efforts to say, you know what, the ethics of this system is that this system shouldn't exist and you shouldn't build it. Uh, and so I'm super interested in that. And I like the idea that an, eth an ethnographic and anthropological understanding of algorithms might give us a kind of uh, grasp on what these objects are uh, that will help us uh, and help other people who aren't anthropologists um, make these kinds of arguments that might finally uh, hold a little bit of weight and have a little bit of effect in the world. At this point, Nick turned to yet another proclivity that some anthropologists share with tech activists, and that he wanted to avoid when it came to thinking about algorithms and their effects. There's one other thing to bring up, which is that you also see nowadays, over the past few years, I suppose, a very dominant strain of popular critique of algorithmic systems that comes from inside of Silicon Valley, that comes from people who were themselves, you know, persuasive designers. Uh, there are organizations like the Center for Humane Technology. There's this documentary that just came out on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which entirely embraced this super determinist, you know, algorithms are getting into your brain. They work so well. Uh, uh, they, they embrace this kind of narrative. And I think that we have set ourselves up for this sort of by endorsing a kind of determinist uh, line uh, that all along had in it these kind of behaviorist premises. Uh, and it's been hard, weirdly, for critics of algorithms, anthropologists and otherwise, to ditch the behaviorist frame, right? To say like, well, what's interesting about these isn't that finally technology's found a way to burrow directly into your head and make you do things. Um, we don't have to use the behaviorist frame. I think it's a, it's a Hannah Arendt line, right? That the problem with behaviorism isn't that it's true, but that it might become true uh, if we treat it uh, uh, in such a way or we organize our lives around it. Um, and I think that that's something that anthropology can bring to the table, which is a sort of non-behaviorist account of these technologies that work on behaviorist premises. Following along these lines, Nick's article quotes Alfred Gell on how anthropologists should approach art, and I think it offers some insight into what the promise of an anthropology of algorithms might be for Nick. Gell asserts, quote, The ultimate aim of art must be the disillusion of art, in the same way that the disillusion of religion, politics, economics, kinship, and all other forms under which human experience is presented to the socialized mind must be the ultimate aim of anthropology in general. End quote. I asked Nick about the Gell quote and the degree to which it captured his view of what anthropology was good for. I'm sure there are arguments you could make for why this is a bad idea or why it's not the only thing anthropology should do, uh, but I found it super uh, illuminating for me to think about the way that I use anthropology, which is uh, a kind of like Strathernian laser vision, right? Where you look at something long enough and it does come apart, right? All of these sort of qualities that you thought had to be there uh, maybe don't. 
right? Or other connections exist that you didn't realize. And you can do this with anything and anyone can do this with anything, right? You can think about something for long enough that it's taken for grantedness seems to sort of dissolve in, in your hands. Um, and I find, you know, teaching undergraduates that students really enjoy this uh, for a while. They find it really stressful. Uh, after a little while longer, <laughs> this idea that what anthropology does is just like obliterates the things that it contacts. No concepts are safe uh, in in when anthropology is in the room. Um, and, you know, you can make arguments that this is a problem. I think if you think of sort of Donna Haraway's arguments about um, relativism, right, this idea that a sort of all, you know, a full bore relativism doesn't let you do anything, it leaves you kind of uh, immobile. I think that that's a, a a worry that we need to keep in mind. You don't want to just say, and nothing matters, nothing is real. We're just going to dissolve everything. As Joe Dumit uh, has written about Haraway, right, this kind of implosion of, of, of the categories by which we understand the world, uh, that that's useful, that that's something that can be politically productive. I don't think it's productive in its own right. I don't think it's the end, um, but I do think it's a very useful step uh, along the way uh, to goals that we, you know, hopefully are pursuing not only as anthropologists alone, but with other people. At this point in our conversation, I asked Nick to reflect on whether proposing an anthropology of something might bestow certain requirements on an anthropologist. I think one of the interesting things that you've touched on here in the fact that we have this kind of genre of, you know, towards an anthropology of blank uh, is that anthropologists write in styles and we have this kind of, um, there's a kind of formal quality, weirdly enough, to anthropological writing uh, that uh, I talk about this with with friends of mine who are anthropologists all the time, that as we're writing, sometimes you feel like you're writing something you want a sentence to sound good. And it's not quite the same thing as saying, oh, I'm, you know, my arguments are all aesthetically driven. I just want to write sentences that feel nice. Um, but that what you're registering there is a kind of intuition that you've built up as someone who has been socialized as an anthropologist uh, that points you to certain kinds of arguments, to certain shapes of arguments. And I think that while, you know, you certainly want to try to raise those things up into awareness and to try to think about them and to think about what issues there might be with them, um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to sort of write from those places. Um, and I think one of the funny things you, you'll see in these kinds of, you know, anthropology of X uh, articles is that, you know, as anthropologists, we sort of take the value of anthropology for granted. Uh, you know, it's easy for us to say there should be an anthropology of blank because we think there should be an anthropology of whatever. Um, and there's a line actually that I love, weirdly enough, not to go back to ethnoscience, but from Ward Goodenough, he talks with his father about uh, what anthropology is. He's like thinking about becoming an anthropologist. And his father says, and he quotes him in here, he says, well, as I understand it, you can be interested in almost anything and that's okay. <laughs> uh, and I think, oh, that's what drew me to anthropology. I love the variety of things that anthropologists are interested in. I love the sort of range and the kinds of conversations you can have uh, when, you know, one person in the room is studying recommender systems and the other one is studying uh, earthquake engineers in Mexico City and another studying the, the interactions between sex workers and missionaries on the U.S.-Mexico border, right? There's a lot of interesting things uh, that can happen uh, from bringing all that stuff together. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize the variety in there and that anytime we're saying there should be an anthropology of X, we are, in addition to saying what we think it should be, we're... Um, narrowing, right? We're not just broadening. We're saying an anthropology in my mind is this, but it's not that for other people. And I think what's funny about that actually is that articles that go under the toward an anthropology of X rubric, um, they risk being sort of plans for silo making, right? And I think that that could be a real problem. And that's why I think 
the framing of the question in the title of this article, what should an anthropology of algorithms do? Uh, it isn't, okay, let's start a subfield called the anthropology of algorithms and carve ourselves out from things, because I would find that to be like the least useful uh, uh, thing to do with what anthropology has to give me as a, as a sort of researcher and critic. Um, what I want is to tie algorithms in uh, to a sort of vast and diverse world of theoretical reference and resources. Uh, and so when I see a toward an anthropology of blank, I usually cringe a little bit because I always want to be like, that can just be anthropology. That doesn't have to have a special modifier. I get why you might do it and why it might be worth identifying certain previously underrepresented concerns. Um, but ideally, right, the goal is to sort of bring that up and in uh, to this sort of, you know, hodgepodge, melee, whatever uh, we have in, in, in the field, uh, rather than to say, okay, this is a thing that we can carve off. Now we'll only ever see these same 10 people when we come to conferences, if we ever get to go to conferences again, uh, and so on and so forth. Nick then observed that the value in putting his research into conversation with other anthropologists could sometimes be less about finding inspiration than about clarifying distinctions. In certain kinds of debates about what anthropology is and what anthropology should be, I occupy a weird position um, because other anthropologists who study other uh, kinds of human action, uh, they might endorse sort of unthinkingly a statement of ethics, say that anthropologists should always work on behalf of the people that they study, right? This is the kind of thing that we hear in, in anthropology, uh, anthropological ethics discussions. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't think that you would like anthropologists of, you know, finance or anthropologists of big tech companies to work on behalf of those entities. Uh, there's an assumption that if you're an anthropologist, uh, you must be studying people who are, are relatively disempowered um, relative to you. This isn't to say that people are wrong about what anthropology is or should be, um, but that we do want to keep in mind that there are many different things in play here, uh, and many of the differences only become obvious uh, in a sort of anthropological standard form once they collide with each other, right? Once you say, oh, I see, that is not what I was thinking of. You know, my, in my mind, I think an anthropology should be like this. And I'm sure that someone who works in a different area that might feel sort of related to this could come out and say, oh my gosh, what you say an anthropology should do would be an absolute nightmare in my context for reasons X, Y, and Z. We don't need to assume that anthropology should have any internal coherence because like everything else in the world, it's a sort of, you know, accidental collection of historical tendencies and major figures and all of that kind of stuff. Maybe I'm I've been teaching our anthropological theory course this term, so I'm a little bit overloaded on historical particularism. But in my mind, there's nothing essential to anthropology other than a history. Now, at this point in our conversation, we looped back to a point made earlier about the occasional need to engage multiple audiences at once. That is, that proposing an anthropology of something may require you not only to situate yourself in relation to other anthropologists, but also to those outside the field. And in many cases, there may not be an obvious something else. In the case of algorithms, there's an obvious sort of domain of, of expertise associated with these things, right? It's computer science. And so the thing that you do as an anthropologist of algorithms always is going to have to be defined in some way in relation to uh, this field that has kind of disciplinary jurisdiction over the concept. Uh, and so that 
to my mind, is important to how I've thought about it, right? I need to be thinking not only within anthropology, but also across the university and across sort of other kinds of epistemic fields. Uh, in work I'm doing now about attention, uh, I have the same thing, right? So I'm doing work on the anthropology of attention. And you say, what's that? Uh, well, that's a thing that psychologists uh, own. <laughs> and so if you want to do an anthropology of that thing, you have to say, well, here's why what I'm doing is not what psychologists are doing. Um, and of course, you read work of Emily Martin and other psychological anthropologists and so on, you find a lot of examples of the ways that anthropology and psychology are not the same and that we have uh, different defining interests. Um, but as I've been working on it, actually one of the funny things to think of the sort of anthropology of blank is I was just reading Sherry Ortner on key symbols uh, to think of maybe what I'm interested in is this thing as a symbol, uh, which felt kind of retro, but kind of right. If you think of anthropology as a sort of shared world of reference, a shared world of sort of citation and uh, and conceptual commons, um, then an anthropology of blank is a study of blank that draws it into the sort of network of ideas and thinkers that we have in anthropology. As you may have noticed, there is something that had been hovering in the background of our conversation this whole time, or at least it had been for me, and that is the question of method. So finally, I put it to Nick directly. What were the methodological implications for the anthropology of algorithms that he proposed? As it turns out, I've written on this a little bit. I have an article titled Algorithms as Culture, uh, which is in part an effort to try to explain and justify an ethnographic approach to algorithmic systems. And I think one of the interesting things uh, coming at questions like this is that, well, I'm an anthropologist, and if I want to study something, there is one method I'm allowed to use, and that's ethnography. And it's not really a problem because ethnography can be basically anything. Uh, and maybe that's a new kind of problem, um, but it's not actually a problem of, of, of limits as it might sound, right? As an ethnographer of algorithmic systems, I can do things like write computer programs, I can interview people, I could make paintings, I could ask people to fill out surveys. You know, there's any number of things I could do and I could fold those things into ethnography. Um, and I love that about ethnography to a certain extent. Um, but what's been interesting for me being in this area where most of the work is coming from more technical fields, right? So human-computer interaction uh, and other areas, those are fields where ethnography is not an obligatory method, which means that if you want to use it, you have to justify it. In those cases, you really have to make a case for it against other, uh, against other methods. And what I've found in in sort of talking with people is that this means that ethnography gets very narrowly defined in those fields, right? Uh, what it means to do ethnography as a as an HCI, human computer interaction researcher, um, becomes pretty constrained. Uh, and I always thought, why, why, why can't you just do stuff and call it ethnography like we do in anthropology? Um, and, you know, there are absolutely arguments for being a bit more formal and a bit more disciplined with your methods. Um, I don't have the kind of mindset where I find those super appealing. I kind of like the the freewheeling quality of, of, of ethnographic methods. Um, and I think that they're, they relate in my uh, case, to the sort of technical quality of the objects, to the distributed nature of the fieldwork. I'm interested in that sort of dispersed quality of ethnographic study, but also uh, as someone who's doing a kind of studying up project, you also have to be methodologically uh, creative uh, because you can't just 
land yourself in a community and be like, I'm here now and you have to talk to me because I have some sort of, you know, maybe colonial adjacent authority or whatever, right? Um, and there's a bunch of interesting work on this um, that's come out fairly recently, actually. Uh, but one piece that I was coming back to a lot while I was doing this work in the first place was um, uh, a bit by Hugh Gusterson about his study of, of nuclear scientists, right? And he talks about a sort of scavenging ethnography, a kind of ethnography of whatever you can do. I think Ulf Hahners has a line about ethnography being the art of the possible. Um, but it's that, right? What can you do? Well, you can't get into that office, so you're going to have to hang out at the bar nearby and see if you can start talking to people who are in there. You're going to have to think a little bit like a spy and that's going to make you feel weird. Uh, and is it okay to be a spy? Well, maybe if the people you're spying on have, you know, much more power than you do and you're not sort of abusing your relationship with them, but you know, it's not easy. There's no right answer, but yeah. So I think the ethnographic quality of this argument is, is huge. Uh, and for me, it was all around sort of questions of access, how to, and how to, um, and how to define what the field was right like where where is an algorithm where can you go uh, to say that you were studying an algorithm and it was very painful for me as a graduate student trying to pull it together um, but i used a lot of references to other people's work uh, to help me make sense of what i was doing so i would i always like to tell people that my favorite sort of methodological reference for my anthropology of algorithms were not really any of the really great uh, work on the anthropology of technology and computing but sort of two things one was um uh, graham jones's work on magicians uh, which is about a sort of secret community of, of, of practice. Uh, and he's written a, a lovely annual review article about secrecy that lets you think about, hey, this kind of secrecy around companies is not new. Um, and uh, Lilith Mahmoud's book, uh, The Brotherhood of Freemason Sisters, which is about Freemasons uh, and about the sort of uh, discretion that Freemasons uh, exercise and what kind of fieldwork can you do of a secret society? Um, and I love them because they are, you know, they're sort of fun topics to a certain extent, but they're also just really interesting comparison points because you can say, wait, this isn't new. This is like, you know, uh, something that you share in common with fields you might not have realized or topics you might not have realized. After hearing this, part of me felt that the ethnographic freedom and flexibility that he was describing needed to be qualified a bit. It seemed to me that not every anthropology graduate program would so readily accept a thesis about algorithms. Yeah, that's right. I, I should say that I'm also reflecting sort of my training uh, in a particularly open-minded uh, graduate program at, at UC Irvine, uh, which was very happy to have this kind of, of, of project in, in play. But you're right, I've talked to other people who are in other institutional settings who have a very hard time convincing um, their advisors, their committees. It doesn't usually hinge on ethnography, it usually hinges on the topic. Um, but you know, they still have a problem saying, hey, I'm gonna do an anthropological study of Facebook users or something like that. Uh, and people saying, I don't understand what that is, how can that possibly be a thing to do? Because I'm the beneficiary of a lot of decades of hard work from anthropologists of computing, uh, it's easy for me to take that for granted and to be like, oh, well, yeah, of course you can do an anthropology of this because you can do an anthropology of anything. But of course, that anything uh, has not actually historically applied to anything. Um, it hasn't applied to computing 
uh, fairly recently, but it also hasn't applied to, you know, race. It hasn't applied to all sorts of things that uh, we find now important for anthropologists to, to grapple with. Um, but I should say that one of the things that I've really benefited from then is the work of people uh, associated with groups like CASTAC, right, which is the Committee uh, for the Anthropology of Science, Technology, and Computing, which has been around in the AAA since sort of the, the, the mid-90s. Uh, and people, you know, uh, Gabriella Coleman, uh, Chris Kelty, Joe Dumet, Lucy Suchman, uh, all of these people who have been doing the work for a long time to get anthropologists to, to realize that this is a kind of thing that anthropology can study. So it's easy for me to come from a place now of like, oh, anthropologists can study anything, it's fine. Um, which certainly does overlook the fact that for many people in recent history and at different institutions, uh, it's not actually something that they're free to do. One of my goals uh, with the work that I've written methodologically around algorithms and anthropology is to make these projects available and legible. Uh, and so maybe not in this essay, but in other ones, I've been sort of exercising my demons uh, from trying to pull this together myself. You know, so I get reviewers who say, don't we know this? Isn't this obvious? And I say, no, we don't. We really thought we should have known it, but we, you know, people did not remember that these were lessons that we had. So we need to sort of say them again. And it's one of those funny things, right, where so much of anthropology is about sort of taking the taken for granted and sort of raising it up to the level of awareness for various people. Uh, but that if you're an anthropologist of something and you study it for so long, all of that stuff, so much stuff falls back <laughs> uh, under the level of, of, of the taken for granted again. And so you have to constantly work to make that stuff uh, interesting to yourself, to not seem too obvious, you know, as someone who's been working on the same project, it feels like for a decade now, I, I'm just thinking, oh, gosh, this is the most obvious thing in the world. Doesn't everybody know this? And it's not easy to uh, overcome that. The only solution I can imagine is I should write faster, but I think everybody thinks that. concludes my conversation with Nick Seaver on an anthropology of algorithms. There are other episodes in this series that look at proposals for, variously, an anthropology of landmines, global health, the multimodal, electricity, and lying, and can be found in the same place you got this episode. If you like this episode and are considering which one to listen to next, let me recommend my conversation with Tobias Race on an anthropology of global health. Production wizardry for this podcast was provided by Matthew Bailey, and the music is by Abstractor and Brazmatez. <laughs>